This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Farm policy. Sort of. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias. Uh, back with us, fresh from vacation, is Ezra Klein. I'm tanned. I'm rested. I'm ready. Ready. Sarah Cliff, we actually don't know where she is. Yeah, um, we had a good discussion about this. It's a mystery. Uh, um, I think she is not in Kentucky, but, you know, you never know. Although, speaking of Kentucky, if you have not read Sarah's piece, uh, where she went to talk to Obamacare enrollees and Obamacare enrollment officers in Kentucky who voted for Donald Trump, you have to read it. It is, I think, one of the best things we've published at Vox ever. It is revelatory in the in the truest sense of the word. And I hope when she's back, we can we can discuss that reporting and also her trip to the KFC Museum, uh, uh, which I have a, a lot of questions about, frankly. A half and half episode, half um, the Obamacare piece, half the KFC Museum. I, I once wrote an article uh, about the history of Kentucky Fried Chicken, so I'm I've always wanted to go. There. I've always wanted to go to that museum, <laughs> um, but for now, something a little less uh, patriotic. Um, we wanted to talk about Russian hacking and its influence on the 2016 campaign. Um, this is something that obviously has been in the news somewhat ever since the the hacking kind of started. But there recently been formal assessment from the CIA saying that they are now prepared to conclude that the purpose of the Russian hacking was to help Donald Trump win the election. The FBI rather narrowly says that they are not comfortable assessing that they know what Russia's motives would be. Um, This has tended to get sort of play in the press as like he said, she said kind of thing. But it, it sort of isn't really, he says, she said. I mean, the CIA is kind of saying in the way that an intelligence agency does, our best guess at what's going on here is that the reason they did election interventions that helped Donald Trump win is that they wanted Donald Trump to win. The FBI, in a little bit more of a like, would I hand this to a prosecutor kind of sense, Mm -hmm. is I think saying, you know, correctly, right? I mean, you could not credibly tell a jury that you have proven beyond a reasonable doubt that you know why Russia did this. But the two poles of this debate, uh, because I think it's actually worth stating this very clearly. CIA says Russia was trying to help Donald Trump win. FBI says Russia was intervening in the American election for some reason, could be to sow chaos, to sow doubts about American democracy. It might have been just to make Hillary Clinton feel bad. They thought Hillary Clinton would still win, but they would have scored some points. But everybody is agreeing that Russia intervened in a consequential way in an American election. Well, everybody except Donald Trump. Everybody except right. The I mean, d- 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 right. So, so D- Donald Trump has. Sorry, everybody met the CIA and the FBI. Yes, that right, is true. Right. Uh, D- Donald Trump has not done a press conference or done like a clear statement on this uh, since the latest round of revelations. But he tweeted um, that you know we we shouldn't believe it. He put out a press release, a very terse three sentence press release, really sort of going nuclear on the CIA, calling them the same people who said Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. Um, and has been out there, his surrogate saying that this is just an effort to delegitimize him as president uh, coming from, you know, 
the lying media and uh, you, and you've also and I think this is actually important. You've seen people who want jobs in the Trump administration. So John Bolton is under consideration, or maybe has been officially named for Undersecretary of State. Which yeah, one he's been he's been. I and think he before. went out and said. Who knows? It could have been a false flag operation. So there's all kinds of pushback coming from all kinds of corners of the Trump administration. And it is it is official and it is a signal being sent to anyone else who would like to be in the Trump administration. So if what you were hoping here was that President-elect Trump would become more responsible on these matters, that the people working for him would be professional enough that they would – refuse to indulge this kind of thing, you you are disappointed today. And, and I would say also that what you have not seen is um, uh, James Mattis, who was picked to be Secretary of Defense, who I think when he was picked, that was widely greeted by Trump skeptical people as – Okay, this is like a good guy. You can see why Donald Trump might like him because he has this like his nickname is Mad Dog. Everyone in the Marines loves him. You know, he's a kind of like Trumpy kind of guy, sort of, but like also is genuinely a very well-respected military commander, defense professional, has sort of normal military officer opinions about geopolitics and Russia, things like that. Um, You haven't heard from him. Right. On this subject, right? The uh, sort of addressing of the question of Russian hacking in the American election has been left to Donald Trump on Twitter, Kellyanne Conway, John Bolton, to the the Trump yes. crew, right? But, but here's what I think is genuinely unnerving about this. And I, and I believe it's Andrew Prokop who, who wrote this piece and convinced me of it. But if I'm, I'm getting the author wrong, I apologize. You are seeing a couple of things here simultaneously. I think that the top-level way people might interpret what Trump is doing here is narrowly political, which is to say that it would be on some level bad for him to have people believe that his election was secured or helped by Russia. And so he is beating that back. But what the, the more unnerving explanation, but probably the truer one, is that Donald Trump, as we've seen often before – really does convince himself of what he wants to believe. Right. And that Donald Trump really has convinced himself that, as he keeps saying, he won one of the largest electoral landslides in history, which is very much not true. Uh, but also that this whole Russia thing, it's probably just bullshit coming from his enemies. And it, it, this is coming in a context where Trump has stopped receiving the daily intelligence briefing because <laughs> this is literally his argument. He is very smart and also he found them repetitive right. because the state of the world doesn't change all that much every day. Um, and he said someone would call him. If something changed. If something changed <laughs> and also that he, he – his direct words were my generals right. are getting the so, briefing, which was – it's hard to say who that was referring to. Exactly. Pro- problematic also in a different way, by the way. But Trump – is someone who has a tendency to believe bad information, to believe things that he wants to believe, to really not force himself to align his views with the best available evidence. And one of, I think, the scary things about this is that if you think about the signal being sent, say, to intelligence agencies and to members of the Trump administration, it is don't tell the president things he's not going to like. Because if you do, not only will he not believe you, but he will probably attack you. You will get fired. Your agency will be delegitimized. What kind of funding is Donald Trump going to want to give the CIA after this? It's probably going to be lower than the funding um, that, that he otherwise would. And at the same time, if you're thinking about the 
decisions that Trump needs to make. He is not a guy who is going to make those decisions based on the evidence maybe that he should believe. He's going to be a guy who makes them based on the evidence he wants to believe. And making matters worse is he's surrounding himself with people who share that trait. The scariest of his appointments to me has been Michael Flynn as national security advisor. Flynn is a guy who became very, let's say, eccentric um, after clashing with the Obama administration and, and being pushed out of his position at, the, at Defense Intelligence Agency. And he, among other things, has been a very constant retweeter of fake news. He has just put out a lot of things into the world that are just not true that he appears to believe. This is when he was just some guy doing his, his own thing, but also, you know, nevertheless writing books, giving speeches and advising Donald Trump. And National Security Advisor is an information structuring position. It is a position that its role is to give the president the information about national security to help him or her make good decisions. So what you have is a president who believes bad information as long as it is congenial to how he wants the world to be, who is being informed by a National Security Advisor who believes bad information congenial to how he wants the world to to be. We're going into this administration with that as our uh, protection against terrible foreign policy decisions. It's yeah. genuinely scary. And I think this is particularly alarming, specifically in the Russian context, because um, because I will say I'm not a big fan of Donald Trump, um, but I sympathize with the viewpoint that I think that the United States policy toward Russia has been excessively aggressive. I mean, I think I I really would have said two years ago um, that something that happened in the United States was that we built up a lot of institutions to curb Moscow's geopolitical influence during the Cold War. And that then when the Cold War ended, we just kind of kept them running in a somewhat thoughtless manner. And I think if you go all the way back to 2004, when the United States is very sort of aggressively in favor of protest movements to bring down a pro-Russian president of Ukraine and bring in a sort of more pro-American, pro-Western president, uh, you can reasonably ask yourself, like, why were we doing that, right? Like, what was the purpose of that. If we had seen heavy influence of Russian intervention in a Mexican election, I think Americans would regard that as very, very alarming. Um, and particularly in the context of 2004, right, we were invading Iraq. We were fighting a war on terror in Afghanistan. Uh, like, what what was this, like, about, right? Um, and, and I think it was reasonable of the Obama administration under Hillary Clinton to try for a reset, to aim for like a, a rapprochement with Russia. I think it did not really work out well for them. And there's a reason that they moved back in a more hawkish direction. But I still don't think it's crazy to look at Syria and say, look, the Russians have basically won this. And there's no percentage in continuing to to fight with them. Uh, this totally appalling massacre has been playing out in, in Aleppo over, over the past couple days. Um, but the United States was not and is not like intervening in a forceful way to stop the Russians from doing this. So Samantha Powell uh, was at the UN and she did a little talk that has like gone viral of like her yelling at the Russians and like, do you guys have no shame? Like you're appalling monsters. Um, I think one can ask like, why? What is the upside 
to her doing that when we don't actually have a policy to stop them. Maybe we should we should try to cooperate on something. Uh, but it would be risky, right? It would be very risky to turn around America's view on the war in Syria, on the civil conflict in Ukraine, um, on the American relationship with Russia in general. You would want to worry that okay, we're trying this, but Putin is playing us for suckers, right? And we think we've reached a new accommodation, but then he turns around the next day and he's invading Estonia and destabilizing the government of Poland and blah, 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 like that. Uh, so if you're going to try like a bold, risky, new, game-changing geopolitical initiative, you really need your intelligence agencies to be letting you know like what's happening. Like, is this working? Yeah. Are we getting what we bargained for out of this? Are we getting screwed over? Uh, it's really embarrassing. Something no administration like ever wants to say is like, okay, we did this thing and it was big and it was controversial and it was consequential, but we thought it was important and then it didn't work. So we need to change course. That's hard. It's not like Donald Trump will be the first president who is reluctant to like hear that bad news, but he's giving every indication of being way worse about it than Obama, George W. Bush even. Um, and it's it's really one of the most consequential things you can do as president, right? Nobody – there's no like flawless administration, right? Even if you have great ideas, some of them don't work out and you need to turn them around. And if you take the view that like, OK, well, I didn't want to hear that – the Russians were rooting for me to win. So I'm making it like really clear if you give me unpleasant news, we're going to like try to destroy the credibility of your whole agency. You can have a really hard time actually executing on any of these these ideas that Trump seems to have. If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors, or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel-y things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. Then there is this piece, which I don't even know how to correctly think about because it is so unnerving. When you look back now, we are faced with the possibility, and I think at this point the probability, that the election, which turned out to be a close election, turned on a combination of Russian hacking, the FBI going out in the final weeks of the election with an investigation that turned out to turn up nothing, but got huge play and made created a ton of negative media around Hillary Clinton and led to a lot of late deciders abandoning her. 
And also, you know, and I, I think this is a little bit more arguable, but by the same token, while the FBI dominated the media with something that wasn't true, the CIA held back and the Obama administration held back from making a major issue out of something that was true. Right. Now, I want to be careful because I was alive during this election. I'm old enough to remember it. And there was talk of Russian hacking. I mean, it wasn't something that was unknown, but it was talk for political junkies. It wasn't front page news of every paper CIA says Russia trying to influence American election. Right. It's a very – the media dynamics of something like that are very, very, very different. I want to be careful in, in how I phrase this because, again, it was a close election and so many things mattered. Um, if Hillary Clinton had not set up a, a second – if she had just used the state government emails, like everything might be different. But in a close election, because a lot of things mattered, the fact that the crucial difference for Donald Trump was probably made by a mixture of Russian intelligence services and American intelligence services – is a very scary feeling place to be, particularly because what happened is we nominated, uh, we elected one of the most erratic and least prepared individuals ever to hold this office. The fact that it came about as a fluke and a matter of foreign influence is it's very, I don't, I almost don't know how to summon a sufficient level of alarm about it. Like I don't feel constitutionally capable of facing up to what appears to have happened here. It's a very it's a very scary thing that I don't even know what the right response to that is. Yeah, and I I would also say, I mean, a, a sort of like secondary disturbing, I would say, you know, trend that that I've definitely seen over, over the past couple all they cheer this week days on the weeks. is a there's a marked tendency among people who wished that Bernie Sanders had been the Democratic nominee. People who worked for Hillary Clinton's campaign or who supported her passionately, they like election narratives that paint her as a tragic hero and as a victim. So they are very into Russian hacking and James Comey, whereas people who supported Bernie Sanders like narratives that paint Hillary as a villainous figure who, though she was better than Donald Trump, in a sense is responsible for Donald Trump through her own blundering. So they're very into – there's a Politico story about how the Clinton campaign's field operation in Michigan like ignored all the desires of local activists in favor of a top-down, data-driven approach from Brooklyn. So I'm seeing that shared a lot from left-wing people. Um, Obviously, the handing out of lawn signs in Michigan – and or the hacking of private communications by Russians are not like what the Clinton-Sanders primary was about in terms of like issues and ideology. But you see how it goes that way. But I think it's dangerous for the country for, um, you know, foreign government hackers should not intervene in elections to be like a partisan issue. And it's triply dangerous for it to be construed as like a narrowly factional issue, right? That like to say, I think it is bad that Russian hackers stole John Podesta's emails and leaked them to try to sow dissension in the United States and possibly make Donald Trump president should not be read as like equivalent to I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership was great or Hillary Clinton never made tactical errors in her campaign. It's like a bad thing to have happen like independently on its own merits in part because 
it worked. And you would assume that the implication of this is that other foreign entities are going to try to get in on this game, right? It's a little bit crazy. And I think a normal, prudent foreign leader, if given this um, proposal, would have been like, you know what, guys? Like, that's fun. But, like, maybe don't do that. Like, maybe, like, save the hacking for some kind of industrial espionage, something we can walk away from if you get caught. Because, like, this seems a little explosive and weird. But, like, the Russians did it. They sort of got caught. Um, nothing bad is going to happen to them as a result. So now, you know, whether you're uh, Angela Merkel, uh, you know, like a a U.S. ally, but who has concerns about what happens in American politics, or you're China, or you're India, or you're Pakistan, I mean, I think you got to be, like, phoning up your people and being like, okay, what's our, like, cyber electioneering campaign? And so to make this, like, all about the specifics of, like, what was in the WikiLeaks documents and like, do we like Julian Assange? I think is really short-sighted, but it's, it's, I think it's been clear since election day, it's been really difficult for people to like process any information about America through anything other than a like rerunning the election. But like the election is over, yet we're going to move forward into a paradigm in which uh, this kind of, this kind of thing is like a, tactic of politics and of, of foreign affairs. I want to make a, a bit of an off-topic point here and then I'll bring it I'll bring it back to this conversation. But but to your discussion there of the way things are getting absorbed into Sanders and Clinton counterfactuals. Something that annoys me about the counterfactual conversation is the lack of imagination it tends to have on on all different sides. One thing that I try to ask myself when when running a counterfactual scenario, like what if Joe Biden had run for president or what if, you know, um, Bernie Sanders had been the nominee or whatever it might be, is can I imagine writing the story where it turned out even worse for that person? Uh-huh, sure. Right. Can I imagine writing a story where Bernie Sanders lost the popular vote by 1% and also lost the electoral college? Uh-huh. I can. I can also imagine writing a story where he won by 2%. Uh, Bernie Sanders had a very large suite of tax increases that when you pulled them did incredibly, incredibly badly. They were not damaging to a large degree in a Democratic primary, but with a lot of working class white voters, they probably would be. Um, or maybe he would have won. Uh, you know, like I have my own set of, of counterfactuals. Like I think Joe Biden should have run for president. But I also think that while I like that counterfactual, he would have lost the primary. Right. <laughs> so nothing would have happened. And um, – I think Elizabeth Warren should have run for president, uh, and, and I wrote that piece early on. And I actually think she might have won the primary, but and, but then I don't know. I don't really know what would have happened. But I, I do think that it's important. There can be a tendency to create an argumentative structure that is something like X didn't work out. We should have done not X. This is not X. Thus, this would have worked out. And that's just not true. I, 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 to take this a little bit out of the electioneering context, I remember talking with members of the Obama administration at some point about the debt ceiling and, and their strategies around that in, in 2011. And I was very critical of, of a lot of what they did there. But I remember them, some of the, someone there saying to me, and, and, and a point I thought was persuasive, was that I, I can't remember what scenario I had posed to him. But he said, look, I was in a room with 15, like really, really people I think are really good at politics and policy, people who have passed major pieces of legislation, won big campaigns. That idea got brought up in that room. 
And it was rejected because we thought it would turn out worse than the way – than the direction we ultimately went. Now, the direction we ultimately went didn't turn out that well either. So maybe you're right. Maybe this other thing would have been better. But maybe they were right and it actually would have been worse. Uh, we we rarely live in the darkest of all timelines. So I think it's good to be um, – it is important to think through counterfactuals, right? Obviously, uh, the way things are working out is also not the, the lightest of all timelines. But I think it's also important to be a little to, – to recognize that it's all probabilities and things can also turn out turn out badly. Yeah, because you put two points on, on that because I, I think it's interesting. One is that we have a really good article on the site by Jeff Stein that's about uh, Bernie's uh, – Chris Hayes Town Hall uh, in Wisconsin from I think it was Monday night uh, with like Trump voters. And it was designed to like showcase the idea that like Bernie Sanders could win over these white working class Trump supporters. Um, and to an extent as like a TV vehicle, like it does show that. Uh, Bernie was, of course, advantaged by the fact that there was nobody from Donald Trump's campaign there uh, to, to, to push back. But But what Jeff says, which is I think very shrewd, is that like – Bernie does not have all the like crazy Trump baggage. And then when Bernie would say to Trump supporters policy things where he and Trump agree, like we need to tear up these bad trade deals and we need an outsider to shake up the political system, uh, they really liked that. Like they liked that Trump-Sanders Venn diagram overlap message Mm -hmm. and they liked the fact that Bernie Sanders is not like a sociopath. (laughs) But then when they pulled them on like, should we have like way higher taxes and make college free? They were like not as into that stuff, right? So, I, I mean, in terms of the election, the election was really close. Like that may well have been good enough to win yeah. it. Uh, but when we're just thinking about going forward, right, it's just like it's it's important to always think about like only one person can win an election. But like what about them? carried it forward, right? People who I know who like Bernie Sanders, the thing that's most exciting about him is Medicare for all, free college, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. Um, I think there is some good reason to believe he might have done better in at least specific states than Hillary Clinton did, but typically not for those reasons. The, The other thing in terms of counterfactuals is just like this is why I personally am always hung up on the like Let's do buck raking speeches for three years after stepping down as oh, Secretary I totally of State. Agree with this. Because with most of these things, you can second guess the campaign message, but I am sure that when they settled on the message that they settled on, they considered doing other messages and they felt that there were pros right. and cons to all the different ones and blah, blah, blah. There was obviously no pro to like, let's go do a speech for $600,000 to a Brazilian bank. Like, or or let's rather, do three speeches for $675,000 to Goldman Sachs, right. the literally least popular institution in the country. Right. I mean, the, the, pro, to, the pro to all of that stuff, I mean, uh, those of us who've, who've done paid speaking ourselves can tell you is that you get paid money for it. Um, but that was like a different kind of trade-off where Hillary Clinton was balancing her personal desire to have more money against like what would be a wise political yeah. strategy. Um, so that I feel like is just like the free shot that everyone gets to take. Uh, oh, I think there are a lot of good shots to take. But actually, to go back to the the one of the original counterfactual things that made me think of this, that Michigan story. Oh, yeah. I can just really imagine writing that story both ways. I can really imagine Hillary Clinton winning Michigan, and then you write the story about her data analytics yeah, and yeah, genius, yeah, yeah. which happened in, in 2012. I can also imagine writing the story that in Mich- – like. The Hillary Clinton campaign, unlike the Barack Obama campaign, which had perfected this data analytics run, you know, do everything by the number strategy, 
had this campaign full of old school political hacks with really good relationships with local activists and local politicians. And that when Debbie Stabenow and whoever, whoever came to them and said, here's what's going on in Michigan, they marshaled all their forces and everything was a total disaster because they ran their campaign like it was 1982. Now, obviously, these are different poles of the of the thing and and you can certainly have found better better balances but again the the stuff where as you say like she should not have given the goldman sachs speech she should not have used a um private email server yeah, while yeah, yeah. state like you can really look at that stuff and say she fucked that up like real big but a lot of these other things i can imagine it turning out better and i can imagine it turning out worse and i think it's telling What nobody appears to have learned from this election is that more Democrats should be like Evan Bayh, who ran way ahead of Hillary Clinton, even though he lost in Yeah, and Jason Kander. And and Jason Kander. And I also don't think more Democrats should be like Evan Bayh. But I can understand what the argument being made made there is. But if all anybody ever learns is like that they were right all along, I think that's a place to be skeptical of how rigorously the counterfactuals are are being treated. Anyway, off of that digression, I do want to, to say that Imagine in 2013, I had said to you that Russia will engage in a large-scale digital espionage operation to influence the American election. They will succeed. The way they will succeed is that they will help elect the least popular president-elect ever, who also loses a, a, in the popular vote, but, but he does become president. What do you think will happen to Russia? And I think that if I had posed that hypothetical to someone a year after Mitt Romney was the Republican nominee saying Russia is our greatest geopolitical threat and you know, while the Obama administration had a very tense relationship with, with the Putin regime, I think you would say this is going to be an unbelievable crisis between US and Russia um, to the point that like we are talking about Certainly digital retaliation, maybe physical retaliation, maybe sanctions. I mean, we would be talking in that world about uh, a genuine emergency. And instead, as you say, Donald Trump is attacking the CIA and Republicans, while they are open to – they are now under pressure, open to seeing it investigated, uh, pressure by the way that they resisted during the election. They are not forming any kind of select committee for it to, to really focus on that. It will just be one of the things that a bunch of other committees are doing. One thing is it shows, I think it's Brendan Nyhan who likes his line, that partisanship is a hell of a drug. So that's one piece of it. But but the other is that we are entering – like this is like uncharted territory in a way I don't even know how to think about. And I think this is the context in which it makes sense to talk about Rex Tillerson. Let's move to the – Unbelievably well-named Rex Tillerson. Right. So Rex Tillerson is the CEO of Exxon. Uh, when this was like first floated, I like laughed. Um, and uh, Yoki Driesen, our uh, sort of like world affairs editor, he said to me, you know, I, I've met Rex Tillerson. I, I've talked to him a, a few times over the years. Like this is a smart guy. He knows a lot about the world. You have to understand that like what a giant multinational oil company does is in fact a lot of – dealings with foreign countries. This is like not totally as crazy as it as it sounds like. And certainly by the Rudy Giuliani, Newt Gingrich bar, you know, of like other people who Trump was floating, um, seems maybe almost sensible. On the other hand, we've been having secretaries of state since 1789. 
1791, I guess, all of them have had prior experience working for the American government, uh, in part because the job of the Secretary of State is to represent the American government abroad. Rex Tillerson's entire career has been representing the shareholders of the Exxon Corporation. He has never... Doesn't it feel like you're just living in a Lyndon LaRouche pamphlet right now? I mean, he has never... I don't want to say that Rex Tillerson is an unpatriotic man who doesn't love his country and has no taste for public service. But Rex Tillerson has not given any indication over the course of his lifetime that he has a passion for public service, a desire to sacrifice his personal interest for the American people or or anything like that. He's a business guy who, yes, he knows a lot of foreign people. In particular, he's been involved in many, many, many visits to the Obama White House, uh, all of which, according to the logs, were on the subject of lobbying to get sanctions taken off of Russia. That's because Exxon has a giant uh, set of oil rights that they um, are entitled to in Russia, but that they can't invest in or begin extracting oil and gas from because of sanctions on Russia. He has uh, received the order of friendship from the Russian government, from Putin personally. Uh, Kellyanne Conway went on TV and said, it's not like he and Putin were pounding vodka shots together. There is a video I will show you of him and Putin drinking champagne together. I mean, six to one, half a dozen to the other. Kellyanne's right. Um, Also, having been to Russia, it is genuinely inconceivable that he... uh, had a dinner with Putin and they did not pass vodka <laughs> together. It, would, it wouldn't happen. Um, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> but typically speaking, when you take office, you would not go outside the normal qualifications that are looked for in a secretary of state in order to pick a person who one of the knocks on them is that they have excessively close ties to the government of Russia. If you were in some way concerned about demonstrating to the Russian government or to the American people that you had some kind of problem with the Russian hackers intervening in elections, uh, the the chairman of the uh, Russian state Duma hailed this with a with a, with a series of tweets in which they said Tillerson was terrific and that Donald Trump continues to amaze. Um, I was told I, I obviously do not watch Russian television on a daily basis, but. Gary Kasparov, the uh, uh, chess grandmaster turned sort of Russian dissident, was saying that this was getting uh, much more extensive coverage on Russian television than on U.S. television, which was dominated by Kanye West's visit to, to Trump Tower. So at a minimum, the understanding in Russia is that Russia is getting a huge and possibly better than they hoped for win out of this choice, which, you know, it doesn't seem great. You all can't see my body language right now, but I'm like physically slumped over the table because this is just batshit insane. This is the craziest timeline. (laughs) This is so far out of the norms of what makes any sense in American politics. Look, like I joked a second ago, that's like living in a Lyndon LaRouche pamphlet. This guy gets elected promising to drain the swamp. He gets elected promising to drain the swamp while attacking Hillary Clinton for giving speeches to Goldman Sachs. He says Ted Cruz is owned by Goldman Sachs. 
he immediately appoints two Goldman Sachs bankers to his top two economic positions, to Treasury and to NEC. This guy gets elected partially on the back of Russian hacking after being criticized the entire campaign for being too close to Vladimir Putin, who he alternately says is like a great friend of his and who he doesn't know. Then he appoints the CEO of Exxon, of of all things, whose (laughs) primary... The primary thing we know about this guy in terms of international affairs is that he has an extremely good relationship with Putin. I I don't – I'm sorry. Like I, I recognize that my job on this podcast is that I'm supposed to analyze what's going on and, and give some – hopefully provide a little bit of clarity. Here's my clarity. Like if you think this is fucking insane, it's fucking insane. Like what's going on here? I keep having this problem as an editor. I do not know how to assign us stories that sufficiently convey how bad this is. This is something, by the way, there was a debate a couple months ago about normalizing Trump, not months, probably weeks ago. And there have been really good pieces, including a piece by Matt called The Case for Normalizing Trump. And, And the point there, I think, the point you make in that piece is that Treating every Trump tweet like a national emergency, making this a kind of circus where every time Kanye West comes to the White House at the same moment Donald Trump is saying that he doesn't have time to give a press conference on his conflicts of interest, when you allow that kind of controversy of the day mentality to to operate, when that is your definition of abnormal, then you're you're in a bad place. But the thing that's becoming a little bit hard to handle is a much more substantive question of normalcy, which actually isn't about Donald Trump's behavior, but his choices, but the context. Like the question of is the environment that we are living in normal right now? Are the outcomes in American politics normal? Not is a president a normal guy, but has American politics run off some kind of cliff? And it feels to me like it has. Now, we're going to see with the Senate, um, you all need – there have been Republicans who are already grumbling about Tillerson, who are grumbling about John Bolton. You know, McConnell, who seemed resistant on this, has at least now said that the Russian hacking will be investigated. You know, we'll see what kinds of efforts there are to, to impose some normalcy. But I don't think they're going to be very strong. And 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 as you say, the, the, the signals the world is getting from us right now are just crazy. You can hack an election as long as your hacking is really good and you win. It's all good. I mean, one, one thing to, to note, the, the point you're making, Matt, about the way we have a lot of anti-Russian uh, institutions in American government is that actually if you want to find people qualified enough to be secretary of state who are pretty pro-Russia, it's hard. Yes. You would have to go find someone like the CEO of Exxon because the American foreign policy establishment is very skeptical right. of Russia. The military establishment is very skeptical of Russia. Um, Michael Flynn being a weird counterexample who gives speeches and sits next to Putin for Russia Today. Um, but I don't know, man. Like, I, th- I, I, to, to an extent, though, this is even like where I want to like – again, like urge a, a – to an extent, a, a normalizing approach. I, I was having a vociferous disagreement with a, with a leading Democrat the, the other day in which she was trying to tell me like, look, this isn't about the policy. Like this is about the hacking. This is about whatever, you know. And I think to an extent that that doesn't work, that like one reason Trump uh, can get where he is, is that 
having ties to Vladimir Putin's Russia is not the same as having ties to Stalin's Soviet Union. Right. Right. It does not go without saying to a normal person that like having a positive relationship with Russia is bad. Now, you can say, oh, Putin is a vicious dictator. And like, that's true. Um the king of Saudi Arabia is also a vicious dictator. That does not stop the United States from having an alliance with, with him. Um, what I think is bad is that I saw Bob Corker on uh, TV yesterday and then again this morning uh, talking about Tillerson. And he's, he's cheers, from, cheers the, leading foreign yeah, policy and he, Well, he, he chairs the, the Foreign Relations Committee. So he's not going like all in for Tillerson. He's saying like, well, we're going to have to hear, you know, uh, more about his views. But he's also saying like, don't disqualify him because of his ties to Putin. He's a very impressive, very distinguished uh, man. And, and I think that that is 100 percent wrong. Like, like it, it, it's, it's way, way, way off base. What's true is that if you are determined to pivot American foreign policy in a pro-Russian direction, then you can't select – someone who served at a senior level in the George W. Bush State Department, and you also can't select someone who served at a senior level in the military recently, um, and you can't select a senior member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. The reason you can't do any of those things is that none of those people favor a foreign policy pivot and an alignment with Russia. So if you favor that, of course, you want a secretary of state who shares your views. Uh, so if you're looking for a secretary of state who shares those views and who isn't wildly unfit, then Rex Tillerson looks like a good choice, right? As Yoki was saying to me, he's dealings with foreign government. He's run a large organization. It, it all makes sense. And I just want to note one of the, the credentials you're hearing from him is that he's been recommended by Condoleezza Rice and James Baker. Right. And both, all of whom turn out to be on the paid consultants to Exxon. Right. But so, just noting. So I, I just think it's like there's two divergent ways to look at Rex Tillerson, right? One is if you want to shift American foreign policy in a pro-Russian direction, he seems like possibly the best choice in the world to do that. I mean maybe somebody else, but, but like a really solid choice yeah. for a new pro-Russian direction in U.S. foreign policy. Uh, if you don't want a new pro-Russian direction in U.S. foreign policy, as Bob Corker says he doesn't, then he's not impressive and distinct. And he's right. not qualified. Exactly. I mean, it would be you, you. Trump is, and of course, you know. Look, it's politics, right? Like, it's not a college admissions. You don't just give the jobs to the people with the best resumes. You give them to guys whose policy direction you agree with and who seem like they would do a good job. But you have to, you know, maintain a focus on that fact. Like, Trump has passed over a bunch of more qualified, more logical choices in order to reach for a guy who maybe meets the bar seemingly in order to drastically revise American foreign policy. I think that if Democrats want to be critical on this front, they have to make the argument like about policy, right? I mean, you if you can persuade people that Donald Trump's new pro-Russian foreign policy is a bad idea that will have bad consequences that people should deplore, then I think you have like a really good basis from which to talk about Rex Tillerson, to talk about hackers, to talk about Michael Flynn, to talk about, you know, whatever you want. But to just sort of assume that like, well, Putin is bad, so ties to Putin are disqualifying, it doesn't 
now that Trump has won, right, there is a natural normalizing to like being president. And you have to talk about like what he's doing and how it impacts the world and how it impacts people and not just kind of run around being like shocked and horrified all the time. This is probably a direction to take things on a, on a future episode of The Weeds because I don't want to take up all our time here. But, but one just note I'll, I'll make on this. We are seeing a very weird version of the let's elect a businessman as president theory occur. I mean, weird because Donald Trump is weird and in many ways not a businessman in the way people think of that term. He's a he's a branding and marketing figure. But what he is doing is in certain key positions, Secretary of Treasury, National Economics Council, and Secretary of State at the very least, he is pulling in people with little to no government experience who have run very big businesses with uh, or have been involved in very big businesses. Mnuchin, the, the Treasury Secretary, is not a particularly distinguished banker. He just worked at Goldman Sachs and ran some other stuff. He's pretty rich. He's very rich, but he comes from a very rich family. Yes. <laughs> As does Donald Trump. As does Donald Trump. And so you're getting a kind of certainly the threat of a very deep kind of corporatism. And, and you're seeing this on both sides, not people who will necessarily run government as a business, but will run government for the benefit of certain businesses who have been molded for, for decades within certain businesses and, and, and almost certainly absorb some of those incentives, the incentives of the organization as, as their own. It's an unavoidable thing to do when you're really committed to your life's work, as these men I'm sure have been. And at the same time, Trump is doing this much more populist and much more popular thing where he calls up individual businesses and browbeats them and tells them not to move their factories and tries to, to influence them that way. And so you're actually getting both sides of what we would normally think of as, as corporatist rule here, which is – and Matt, you've talked about this in terms of corruption in, in a very different – in a very, I think, persuasive way. But you're seeing key people who will probably run government certainly – on some version of it to benefit interests that they may not even realize are a little bit more limited to the industries they come from or the businesses they come from. And also a government where because the head of it is a businessman, he actually doesn't have that much respect for businesses making decisions and is happy to try to just move them around for his own popularity or based on his own intuitions about what makes sense. It's not a great way to run a government, not a great way to run an economy either. And I, I think it's something that should be given, giving folks pause and not just folks, but not just people in general, but the big thing for Republicans in recent year, like the cool ideological move is a Republican to make was to say that you're against crony capitalism, that your big concern in life. And this is something we've heard from Paul Ryan and Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney and all these top Republicans is the big problem with the Obama administration is it's full of crony capitalists and they did things like Solyndra. And this is crony capitalism in a way I actually never thought we would see in America. I'm not hearing a lot of anger uh, among Republicans about it, but it's it's dangerous and it's dangerous for the reasons that I think that were overblown when applied to the Obama administration. But crony capitalism is a bad thing and people should be – this is this is bad. <laughs> talk about white paper? Yeah. Why don't we talk about another way in which America is coming off the rails? Okay, uh, so we're going to talk uh, talk this week about an exciting paper. Uh, 
from Raj Chetty uh, and a bunch of other people, David Gruski, Maximilian Hell, Nathaniel Hendren, Robert Manduka, and Jimmy Narang uh, is published as an NBER working paper um, called The Fading American Dream, Trends in Absolute Income Mobility Since 1940. Um, Chetty and co-authors have been working for a while on a big project about um, upward mobility and economic opportunity in the United States. They've done a lot of uh, sort of big research papers. They've got a They've unusually for academics seem to have gotten funding to do like media outreach and, and stuff like this around this. So a, a lot of their stuff has been written up. A lot of it I've sort of had some quibbles with. Um, but this one I, I actually found incredibly impressive. And, and one reason that it's impressive is that they – ditched the definition of economic mobility that they've been using in previous you, research. You want to say what they found? And then yeah. Let's dig OK. So, so they, they find that like upward mobility has declined sharply in the United States uh, over the years, that it declined from uh, 1940 to 1950, declined again, declined again, kept declining again. And so basically um, for people who were born at around 1940 – uh, expectations of, of upward mobility were met in the about 90% of the cases. So about 90% of cases, people made more than their parents did. Right. Uh, whereas for, for kids born in 1980, um, it, was, it was about 50-50 and, and skewed in a weird way so that people uh, actually from the bottom 10, 20% of the population were quite likely to end up out earning their parents. Uh, doesn't necessarily mean you're like, Super rich, you go from ten percent to fifteen percent, uh, but you know you're you're going up. Uh, but for people in the broad middle class, like a huge decline from nearly ninety percent in nineteen forty to a little bit below fifty percent uh, for for kids born in nineteen eighty. So so one thing that's interesting here is that they they used to use as their definition of economic mobility this notion of relative mobility. So it was like how the deck reshuffles among people compared to each other, uh, which right. is- If you were in the 10 percentile of the income distribution, where were you in the future? Yeah. And and just a kind of like churn sort yeah. of measure. Uh, this is a thing that academic researchers have enjoyed measuring, but I have always thought totally defies like what it is people mean by upward mobility. This new paper, they use, I think, a much more intuitive definition where it's defined in absolute terms. So that we can all enjoy upward mobility in this new definition, right? It's conceivable that every single person in the United States would grow up to be richer than their parents Sorry, were. Because of the new definition. So the old definition is you were in the 10 percent and now are you in the 12 percent? Right. The new definition is do you make more than your parents? Exactly. Like, exactly. That's it. Right. Inflation so, adjusted. Right. So, so the old definition was sort of zero sum, yeah. right? It required losers so that uh, some people to go down so that others could go up. Uh, now it's in absolute terms. And, and so it shows – because it's an absolute measure, it shows that the good old days were how we remember them. Right, that if you were born in 1940, you would have left high school in the late 50s, and you would have done your prime sort of working years in the 60s, where there was very rapid economic growth, and that growth was very equally shared. So the overwhelming majority of people wound up better off than their parents were. That's what made the good old days so good, right? Is that like it was good for almost everybody, whereas in in 1980, uh, that's not true. So when I first looked at this, uh, one of their charts on Twitter, I thought, 
to myself, well, this is kind of obvious. If you were born in 1940, uh, your parents would have grown up in the Depression, um, and you would have grown up in sort of one of the fastest growth times in America. And by the way, if you're born in 1980, because they're measuring this at 30, it's 2010. Yeah. It's a huge fucking recession. Yeah, you're, you're in the depths of a recession. So I was going to say that, okay, this is interesting, but it's really just telling us what we already knew, which was just about the rate of economic growth, right. but expressed in a new way. Um, but they they run the data. They have a very interesting uh, use of, of tax data and census data, doing uh, link, linked administrative data. And so they're able to run simulations, and they show that if the economy had grown uh, – at sort of good old days pace since 1980, uh, we would have had more upward mobility, but really only a modest amount more. Whereas if we had kept GDP growth constant, but it had the kind of quality that we had uh, in the good old days, you would get a good way back up to, to the 1940 line. I mean, basically, they're showing that growth has been slower and more unequal, and that the inequality has played a bigger role in the decline of social mobility than the slowdown in growth. Uh, that, to me, is a new result. I think it's actually a surprising result. It's a little bit of a weird-looking chart if, if you look at it. But it's the first thing that I've seen in the five, six years since, like, we need to talk about inequality more has been, like, a huge talking point on the left. This is the first time that I've really seen something that makes me think, not just that, like, more equality would be nice to have, but that it actually does make sense to put it like ahead of the line relative to just sort of better overall economic Right. Growth. I think the way this discussion used to proceed was that the, the question was, could you make an argument that inequality was holding growth back? Right. Right. It'd be better if the growth was equally shared, but growth was the, the ultimate goal in any case. I mean, you weren't going to get uh, rising living standards without more growth. And so, you know, we have had discussions on this show. I have done a lot of interviews on this question of, you know, how good is the evidence that it is inequality that has made growth slower, that has made productivity growth slower? You know, what, what are we solving by solving inequality? And in this, it says, at the very least, you're solving, you're solving something quite substantial. Um, assuming you could just work on inequality without sharply changing growth, which I think is, is very possible, uh, you will – Fix the thing that people often say is the most important thing. Right. Um, a funny thing about this paper that I think is is not maybe getting talked about as much, but is the traditional conservative move in the inequality debate is to say that what really matters isn't inequality but social mobility. Right. Uh, that is what people are talking about when they say what really matters isn't inequality but equ equality of opportunity. It's an argument between income inequality and social mobility as the relevant metric. What this is saying is that inequality is killing social mobility. Right. And, and once you believe that, that actually quite transforms the nature of this discussion. A lot of people have been arguing that what we need to do is focus on social mobility. Now, I mean, they probably will not, but in theory, yes. have to admit that that means we have to focus on inequality. And I would also say, I mean, this is telling because if you don't require that your inequality fix clearly be growth boosting – then I think it gets actually really easy to fix. You could take the tax code that we have now and simply make it much more progressive in its impact. That would require 
a sort of either a, a negative income tax or a, a larger version of, of earned income tax credit. Um, but it can be done. Uh, Neil Irwin wrote a, wrote a good article recently about like what would like a giant EITC that is designed to make up for like all of the declining wage growth for people in the, in the bottom third of the economy look like. Um, in his column, he characterizes the cost of it as like a lot of money, quote unquote. Um, what he comes up with is $1 trillion over, over 10 years to do this sort of giant EITC expansion to like undo rising inequality. A trillion dollars obviously is a lot of money in the sense you could buy many aircraft carriers for a trillion dollars. That is less than half of what Paul Ryan's uh, proposed tax cut costs. It's less than a quarter of what Donald Trump's proposed tax cut costs. So in the realm of tax policy changes, it's a relatively modest one and I think reasonable people can disagree about like exactly what would happen if you provided a sort of huge supplement to the pay of people in the bottom half of the income distribution who work. Uh, but it clearly would not like devastate the economy in any kind of way, unlike other grandiose welfare state schemes where you can at least like raise the concern that like, well, the economy won't function if people can get all this free stuff. Uh, this is free money you can only get if you go work. And, you know, it, it would cost something. You would have to raise taxes for people at the top rather than lowering it. Or maybe you just wouldn't. Um, you know, I don't think anyone believes Donald Trump is going to fully offset all of his tax plans. Uh, that's sort of how Republicans govern. It's maybe not like the greatest way to do things in the world, but it's workable. So that to me is what's really exciting here because like actually finding ways to like drastically boost economic growth is like it's a good like wonk hobby. Like I have my pet ideas. Everybody else has theirs. But we really don't like know what would make the economy grow as fast as it grew in the 50s. Uh, we really can like sit down with some tax tables and some data and like work out how to have more equality. And if more equality will like really get you the social mobility that people want, even if it doesn't change growth much. Um, that's like, this is a solvable problem. That's actually a good, un unusually optimistic place for us to end. It's been another episode of The Weeds. Thank you to my colleague, Matt Iglesias. We miss Sarah Cliff. Uh, I believe she'll be back next week. Thank you to our producer, Afim Shapiro, and this week, AC Valdez. Uh, the Weeds is a Vox.com and Panoply production, and we will be back shortly. Boom. <laughs>